Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. It is a great privilege and an honor to be asked to bring you the word this morning, and I'm excited to, uh, to get to this, this text with you. Um, I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to John 15. I've been teaching through the Gospel of John in the Koinonia Sunday School class for, uh, for a while, and we've just finished John 15, so it's fresh on my mind. Uh, and it's been such a rich text and uh, so helpful for me and I think for, for our class that I'd just like to share it with you this morning. Um, so John 15. As we begin, I want to ask you a question. What is a Christian? What does it mean most fundamentally to be a Christian? You might say, well, a Christian is someone who's believed in Jesus and has repented from their sins. A Christian is someone who possesses the Holy Spirit. A Christian is someone who has been justified. A Christian is someone who follows Jesus and submits to him as Lord. A Christian is someone who's been born again. And each of those descriptions is is certainly correct, and, and the list could go on. We could add many more things. But may I suggest that none of those things are what it most fundamentally means to be a Christian. There's something more fundamental, more overarching to the identity of a Christian. Something that's the very reason for all of those other things. What is it? What's this? It is union with Christ. A Christian is first and foremost a person who is in union with Jesus Christ. A Christian is one who's been brought into a relationship with, a connection to Jesus Christ, such that he takes all that is our own as his own. And we receive all that is his as our own. As a believer who is in union with Christ, Christ inherits all of your poverty, all of your sin and guilt and deadness, and he deals with it completely. And you receive all of his life and his spirit and his righteousness and all the benefits of his cross as your own. That's what it means to be in union with with Christ. How do you get into that union? Well, the Bible tells us and John has told us over and over again, you get into this union with Christ by faith and by faith alone. Through faith, you are inseparably joined to Christ. As you cling to Christ in faith, believing, receiving all that He is and has done for you, you are brought into an inseparable connection with Jesus Christ. And this is the truth that Jesus has been teaching His disciples. John 15 falls in what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. It stretches from John 13 through John 17. Jesus is just hours from his cross. He is about to die and return to the Father. And he is spending this time with his disciples to reassure them, to show them how they are to live while he is away. He wants to reassure them that he's not going to abandon them. And to do this, he's been teaching them about their union with him. As Jesus dies and departs to the Father, they are actually going to be brought into an even more close relationship with Him as they're brought into union with Christ. And that's what He was teaching them in John 14. But now we come to John 15. And in John 15, Jesus gives us this magnificent and perfect illustration of everything He just taught them in John 14. It is the picture of a vine and branches. This illustration of the vine and branches is not simply to teach us about the reality of our union with Christ. It's meant to take us a step further. It's meant to teach us about how we are to live out that reality of our union with Christ. The vine and the branches is not simply to tell us that we are in union with Christ. That is assumed. 
But it's here to tell us the implications that union has on our life. It's one thing to know theologically that I'm in union with Christ. It's another thing to continuously, consciously experience that union day to day. This passage is not here to tell us only that we're in union with Christ, but to call us to press in and to define our lives by that union. So returning to our question, what is a Christian? This passage will teach us that a Christian is one who is in union with Christ. But that's not all. A Christian is also one who lives out that union in a continual communion with Christ. This chapter is really Jesus and you could say the Apostle John's crystallization of the Christian life. This is who a Christian is and this is how a Christian lives. And to help us with these things, Jesus is going to give us two lessons on a fruitful life in union with Christ. We will only be covering the first four verses in this passage. And as you can see from the title, the main focus of the passage is fruitfulness. So it's not only teaching us about our union with Christ and about our communion with Christ, but the overarching point of these verses is the abundant fruitfulness Christians produce, owing to their union and continued communion with Christ. Look over at verse 16, if you will, of, of this chapter. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would abide. That is the overarching commission over your life as one who is in union with Christ. You have been commissioned as one in union with Christ to go and bear fruit. But what is fruit? Let's define it at the outset here, because we're going to be talking about it all through this, this sermon. Fruit simply refers to all of the good that a believer produces in his life. All of the works of love that come out of the life of a believer, the spread of the gospel, the transformation of lives that happens in and through a believer, and a myriad of other good works believers produce. In these verses, Jesus will teach us that fruit-bearing is essential for those who are in union with him. It's not optional. And he will teach us that fruit-bearing is possible only through continual communion with him, not any other way. So he gives us two lessons to help us. The first lesson is found in verses 1 through 2. The fruitfulness of disciples is rooted in the identity of Christ, the true vine, and the sovereign work of the vine dresser. Before Jesus even begins to tell us about our identity and our role in this process, he begins by giving us two massively essential identities upon which everything else rests. So let's look at these one at a time. He first gives us the identity of Christ, the true vine. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. This is the seventh and final I am statement of Christ in the Gospel of John. You're probably familiar with many of these. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection in the life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And this is his final I am statement. All of these are meant to highlight some aspect of the identity of Christ, what he would provide as Messiah. And here he says, I am the true vine. Now, we don't have time to unpack this profound statement and, and all of its details this morning, but let me try to summarize it for you briefly. In the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly called the vine. Israel was the vine of God's planting. They were to be a people filled with the fruit of righteousness, with God's presence among them. They were to spread out and, and cover the land. 
as that, they were to be the, the vehicle through which God is working out His purposes in the world. They were to be His vine. But as we know, Israel miserably failed in that mission, didn't they? And so they were judged and destroyed in the exile. Instead of being the fruitful vine, they were barren and dead and judged. But now in John 15, Jesus is declaring, I am the true vine. I am the fullest expression of everything Israel was supposed to have been, but failed to be. You see, Jesus, and only Jesus, pleased the Father completely. Jesus perfectly accomplished all His Father's will. Look at this verse in John 8. Jesus says, And He who sent Me is with Me. He has not left Me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. He's the true vine. And as that, He is the one through whom God would now accomplish His purposes in the world. So that means that what is essential is union with Him. You become a part of the new covenant people of God. You become a genuinely fruitful people by union with Christ, the true vine. Israel proved to us that sinful man, regardless of what privileges he is given, cannot on his own please God, obey God, fulfill God's purposes in the world. The only way to become a fruitful people is by being connected to Christ. Jesus is the source of all fruitfulness. Apart from Him, you are like old covenant Israel, dead and barren. So while our passage is about the fruitfulness of disciples, this is the essential starting point. Christ is the true vine. The only way not only to be saved, but to be a fruitful people is to be brought into connection with Him. But that's not all. There's another identity that Jesus says we need to know as we get started. It is the identity of the Father as the sovereign vine dresser. Look at the rest of verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The Father sent Christ to be his true vine, and he also tends to Christ, his vine, and to all those who are in union with him. And he's actively working to ensure the maximal fruitfulness of the vine. Jesus is here implying that the Father is in complete sovereign control over the vine, over those in union with Him, and over this entire fruit-bearing process. And Jesus says that we really need to know this about the Father before we even talk about our responsibility in this process. If we are to understand what it means to be a branch in Christ and our, our responsibility to bear fruit, we need to know this about the Father first. He is sovereignly tending to Christ and those in union with Him to ensure fruitfulness. But how does He do that? What does the Father do? Jesus gives us two things. Number one, the Father destroys barren branches. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Jesus says that there are branches in him, the vine. Branches refer to those who are in relationship with Christ in some way. Notice they're in him. Look what he says, every branch in me. So these people are in Christ in some way, in me. And Jesus says that some of these branches do not bear fruit. And some of these branches do bear fruit. And the first thing the Father does is to remove branches that do not bear fruit from the vine. He takes them away. Look down at verse 6. Jesus unpacks this a little bit more. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered 
They're thrown into the fire. And they're burned. It's a statement of judgment. It's a statement, a picture of final and eternal judgment. So the question is, who are these branches? Who are these branches? Is Jesus saying that it's possible for a person to truly be in union with him, in me, he says. But they don't bear fruit, and so they're eventually judged. Is that what he means? Is, it, is Jesus saying that it's possible for a person to be saved, given the Spirit, brought into union with Christ, but because of their own failure to bear fruit, are judged eternally and cut off from Christ? Is that what Christ is saying? It sounds like it. It's how many people take this passage. But the answer is certainly no. That is not what Jesus means. I think it is crystal clear that Jesus here is speaking of false disciples. False disciples. He's talking about people who look like disciples of Christ. It looks like they are in the vine, in union with Christ, but they're not. And so they're broken off, and they're judged. So let me try to prove this for you, briefly. Who are these barren branches? They're false disciples. Why? Well, number one, because true disciples can never be lost or finally condemned or taken away from Christ. This truth permeates the Gospel of John. It's everywhere. Let me show you a few examples. John 6, 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me. So the Father has given Christ a people to save, and Christ loses nothing of them. But He will raise it up on the last day. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, His sheep, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. They never perish. John 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them, not one of these the Father has given Christ, has been lost. Except the son of destruction, Judas, a false disciple, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Christ loses nothing the Father gives him to save. So this tells me that these branches here who are being removed and judged cannot be true disciples. I think there's another reason. Number two, true disciples in Christ abide in Christ and so bear fruit. While these branches are in Christ in some sense, their lack of fruit proves that they do not Abide in Christ. So look down at at verses 5 through 6, this stark contrast. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So you abide in Christ, you bear much fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's barren, he's thrown away like a branch in withers. You either abide in Christ and bear much fruit, or you don't abide and you have no fruit. Abide in Christ, you have much fruit. But false disciples don't have fruit because they do not abide. All disciples abide. And all disciples bear fruit. Let me show you a few examples of, of this in, in John as well. John six fifty six, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He's speaking of feeding on his sacrificial death. What he's come to accomplish, true disciples feed on Christ and his cross regularly as the pattern of their life. But false disciples are offended by Christ's demands. They have no enduring dependence on Christ's sacrifice. Look at how this crowd responds. Hey, my clicker is not clicking. Here we go. After this, 
many of his disciples. See that? Many of his disciples who had been with him turned back and no longer walked with him. They were false disciples. They didn't abide. Go over to chapter 8 with me, if you will, of, of John. This is a key text in John. Let me show you. John 8, verse 30. Jesus has been teaching in Jerusalem, and verse 30 says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Disciples, believing in Christ. So verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, same group, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You're a real disciple. That's what real disciples do. They abide in Christ's word. They persevere in faith and submission to Christ's word. That's the primary evidence of a true disciple. But false disciples don't abide in Christ's word. They stiff arm it. They ignore it. They belittle it. They don't submit to it. They reject it, which is exactly what this crowd does as Jesus keeps teaching them. And so look what he says down in verse 44. It's the same group that believed in him in verse 30. And they're exposed as not being truly his disciples. Look at verse 44, what he says. After they reject his words, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. They're false disciples. And the case in point example in John 15 is who? Do you know? It's Judas. Judas was in Christ in that he appeared to be one of Christ's disciples. It looked like he was in relationship with Jesus, but he had no true abiding hold on Christ. And so he was fruitless. He was a false disciple. And like Judas, false disciples often attach themselves to Christ and mingle with Christ's disciples. And Jesus says that the Father superintends the fruitfulness of the vine by removing them. Look over at John, 1 John, chapter 2, verse 19. Similar thing, I think, going on here. It says, they went out from us, people that are defecting from the faith, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, look at this, so that, that's a purpose statement, so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Whose purpose was that? Well, it wasn't their purpose to reveal that they aren't of them. It's God's purpose. When people defect from Christ, as grieving as that is, as much as we should pray for them, reach out to them, and exhort them and call to them, and as much as they bear responsibility, we must also not forget that this is the vine dresser at work, exposing, removing, judging false disciples. And the Father does that to ensure the fruitfulness of the vine. He removes those who appear to be in Christ but have none of Christ's life in them to make it plain that Christ does not ever produce barren branches. He's vindicating the vine. And he does it to remove any hindrance from true disciples who have been commissioned to go and bear fruit. So that's the first thing the vine dresser does. He removes and destroys barren branches. That's not all. The Father also disciplines fruitful branches. Look at the rest of verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Focus now shifts to branches who are fruitful in Christ. That is, they're true disciples. They abide in Christ. They have Christ's life in them because they abide in Him. And so they bear fruit. And we're going to talk about this process of abiding in Christ a bit, a bit later this morning, but the point here is still on the Father's activity and His work toward these branches. Jesus says that the Father prunes them. That's what vine dressers do. 
They cut back branches. They, they trim off all unnecessary obstructions to its fruit bearing. They remove overgrown leaves and, and clutter from the, from the plant. And they do it so it would bear more, more fruit. And Jesus says that's what the Father is sovereignly doing for his true disciples. So Christian, the Father is devoted to you as a disciple in Christ. Just as devoted as he is to Christ, who is his vine, he is also just as devoted to you because you are in Christ. The fruitfulness of Christ is produced through the branches. He's after the maximal fruitfulness of Christ, and so he's after maximal fruitfulness in your life. Notice he's devoted to each of the branches individually. Look what he says. Every branch, every one, not just the branches generally, but them individually, intimately, specifically you, Christian. The Father is sovereignly and actively working in your life. He knows just what is hindering fruit. And he knows just what needs to be cut away and rooted out. And he's actively working to ensure that you bear maximal fruit because this is your purpose and identity as a branch in Christ. And the way he does it is through pruning or discipline. Sometimes painful, often painful, difficult, pruning, discipline. Won't read the whole of it, but you know Hebrews 12 passage talks about the Father's good and, and loving discipline of His own. But let me draw your attention toward the very end of that, of that verse. It talks about he, he disciplines us for our good, but it's never pleasant, but, but painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit. Just what John 15 is telling us. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Sometimes His pruning comes in response to our sin, but not always. I'd say oftentimes, most of the time, not. But either way, his discipline is after our fruitfulness. It could come in any form, in all kinds of sufferings and trials, big and small. Disease, death, difficult marriage, disappointment, inconvenience, but the point is that for a believer, all those things are to be received as the good and loving pruning of our sovereign vine dresser. The Father knows just what you as a branch need, and He is sovereign over the circumstances of your life to cause you to bear more fruit. So let me give you a few implications that come from this. Number one. See the connection between the Father's pruning and our abiding in Christ. Right? So, fruit comes from abiding in Christ. right? And the Father's work of pruning leads to much fruit. So that tells me that one of the primary ways the Father's pruning our lives produces fruit is as it drives us to abide in the vine more deeply. The Father is at work in your lives, often through painful circumstances, to cause you to press into Christ all the more. And we all know, especially those of you in here who have suffered greatly, it's in the bitter seasons that Christ's sweetness becomes all the more apparent, His grace more precious, his love more cherished, His strength more depended upon, His glory more visible. The Father is sovereignly working to cause branches to abide in Christ, to drink up more and more of His glory and love and favor and life to you. Exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Talks about the great affliction they experienced, and he says, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So, see the connection between the Father's pruning and 
your abiding in Christ. It's meant to drive you closer to Him, to abide even more deeply in Him. Number two, this should recalibrate the way we view and endure trials. It's the lens, the glasses through which we look and interpret our lives and our circumstances. So do you have pain, suffering, inconvenience, difficulties, trials, hardships in your life? Friends, that's the vine dresser. He's working in all of those things. He's working in you. It's his sovereign work. Well, the confidence that should bring in our lives. He knows just what's hindering the fruit in our lives. He knows just what needs to be cut away. And he's so committed to us in our fruitfulness. That is how we must interpret all of the difficulties in our life. I ran across this quotation from Amy Carmichael, great missionary to India in the late 1800s, who was herself afflicted and acquainted with much suffering, but also one who bore much fruit. Listen to what she said. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, there is not a random stroke in it at all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. And she prayed, rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. Is that your prayer? Do you pray like that? For yourself, for others? Or are our prayers simply that God would take the pruning knife away? Or do we pray that God would, through the pruning, cause us to be more fruitful, to rest more intimately in Christ? I think the reason I so often fail to pray like that and complain at the vine dresser's knife is because the main thing in my life is not bearing fruit. It's other things like my comfort or ease or convenience. And when his knife starts to cut, I start to complain and question, what are you doing, God? But the call is for us to remember that our main task for why we have been left here is to bear much fruit, and the Father's committed to you for that purpose. Should recalibrate the way we focus on our life and give us much comfort in our afflictions. So that's the first lesson on a fruitful life in union with Christ. The fruitfulness of disciples is rooted in the identity of Christ, the true vine, and in the sovereign work of the vine dresser. So before we can even think rightly about bearing fruit, we need to know these things. But now Jesus is ready to, to zoom in on us, on our identity, on what we do in this process. And this is the second lesson. Verses 3 to 4, the fruitfulness of disciples is rooted in their identity as already clean and in their activity of abiding in Christ. So verse 3 tells us about the already clean status of being cleaned disciples. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now what does that mean? Why does Jesus make that statement here? What's the connection to what he's just said? Why not just go, Jesus, from verse 2... Father prunes, they may bear more fruit to verse 4. Abide in me. Why stick verse 3 in there and confuse things? Jesus, it seems out of place. Well, to get, I think, what Jesus is saying is, I think you need to see there's a play on words going on here. Back in verse 2, that word for he prunes is the word katharizo. It means to clean. The vine dresser cleans branches. He prunes them. He cleans them. 
And we still use expressions like this today. We, we clean out the overgrown plant or we clean out the overgrown brush. And so the father prunes. He, he cleans branches by removing hindrances. But then in verse 3, Jesus says, already you are clean. Same word. So the father cleans the branches. Already you are clean. The father prunes fruitful branches. Already you are pruned. The father cleans already clean branches. So what does that mean? I think Jesus inserts this comment here because he wants to protect us from a serious misunderstanding. You, as a disciple, are not made progressively clean in your standing by your progressive growth, by your fruit, and by the Father's pruning work. No. You are already completely clean. And the work of the Father is to bring you more and more into conformity with what you already are. You, Christian, are already clean. Why? Look what Jesus says. He says, because of the word that I've spoken to you. Christ's word represents the sum total of his teaching, which centered on his person and his cross work. And Jesus says that it's on account of that word as it's believed and received that disciples are brought into union with him and made completely clean. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Clean. He does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. Already you are clean. In other words, a disciple is one who has believed Christ's words, all that he's declared. By faith, he's brought into connection with Christ and receives all of Christ's cleansing as his own. That's the basis of your cleansing. You progress in the Christian life and seek to bear fruit and willingly receive the pruning of the Father, not to make yourself clean, but because you're already clean. Oh, that should change everything about how we live. Put it like this. The Father's work of pruning Cleansing disciples is in order to progressively make them what they already are in Christ. This verse is what makes these teachings so uniquely Christian. That's how Christians live their lives in the already not yet paradox of who they are in Christ. You're already clean unchangeably, completely owing to your union with Christ and the Father now works to clean you to bring you experientially more and more into what you already are in Christ. In other words, if that were not true, if your status as cleansed were based on how much the Father had to cut away, how much fruit you were bearing in your life, you wouldn't have any comfort at all. Your security would be built on your own fruit, how good you're doing that day. Your foundation... Standing before God would be on that, and that is a hopeless place to rest because there is a lot of work that still needs to be done here. But not only that, you would have no comfort of the Father's care for you. His pruning knife would be a sign of judgment, not of love and tender care. And I'm afraid this is how many of us live our lives some difficulty or, or, or suffering comes into our life and we treat it as a sign of God's judgment. But Jesus tells us we're already clean, decisively, unchangeably. The Father is already satisfied with us because we are in Christ. And now when the pruning knife comes into our lives, it's not the Father's judgment. It's the sign of His love, and His commitment, and His tender affection. For you. You're already clean. So now Jesus has laid three massive foundation stones. 
the identity of the Father, the identity of Christ, your identity as a cleaned disciple, and now he's ready to tell us about what we are to do in this process. As with so much of the Christian life, before right living comes right thinking. To live fruitful lives, we must be grounded in doctrine and in truth. If you skip verses 1 through 3 and go straight to verse 4 on what you do, you will be a very miserable Christian. And you won't bear fruit like Jesus desires. But now we're ready. He gives us in verse 4 the essential duty of abiding in Christ. Look at verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word abide literally means to remain or continue. It's a very basic word. Jesus' command here is that disciples remain or continue in their relationship with him. Just as disciples began by a dependence on Christ's word and his sacrifice, so they must continue to the end. So if you want a definition for abiding, I think it's this. Very simple. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It is a persevering dependency on Christ. Disciples are commanded to abide in Christ, to perseveringly depend on Christ. And... Disciples are commanded to ensure that Christ abides in them. Look what he says. Abide in me, and I think you could put it this way, and ensure that I abide in you. And the two are inseparably linked. You're commanded to ensure that Christ stays in you, abides in you. Well, how do you do that? That's as you abide in him. So if I handed you an extension cord, and I said ensure that electricity remains in this cord, how do you Keep that command. You plug it into the electrical socket, right? Electricity always flows to what's connected to it. And the same it is with Christ. How do you ensure Christ remains in you? It's by you remaining connected to him. And as you do, Christ will fill you, nourish you with his life as a vine does with a branch. And Jesus says this is the exclusive means to fruit bearing. Fruit only comes through the life of Christ pulsating through a believer's heart and life. One must be in continual connection to, drawing upon the resources they have in Christ. Not just positionally in union, but continually in communion with Christ. Living out that union that we have. So you say, okay, Michael, I see, but what does that look like practically? Practically, how do I abide in Christ? And Jesus tells us. He gives us two things. We could say a lot more, but just stick with the immediate context here. Two ways you abide in Christ. Number one, disciples abide in Christ and Christ in them. How? By abiding in his word, such that his word abides in them. You remain in a relationship of persevering dependency on Christ by persevering with the dependence on his word. And as you do that, Christ nourishes you and fills you with his life. You fill your life with the word. You know all that he taught. You trust his promises. You obey his commandments. You submit to his teaching. Your life is saturated with the scriptures. Look at verse 4 again. He says, abide in me and I in you. Now look in verse 7. Very similar. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. You want to abide in Christ? Abide in his words. You want Christ to abide in you? His words must abide in you. That's the mark of a true disciple. Next. Disciples also abide in Christ such that Christ abides in them by dependent prayer. Look at verse 7 again. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, 
and it will be done for you. In other words, prayer is to be the practical means whereby we express our dependence on Christ as we seek to bear fruit. So you abide in Christ by feeding on his word, and as you are filled with Christ's word, your desires are going to be in line with his desires. And as that happens, what kind of prayers do you think you're going to be praying? They're going to be ones that Christ desires, like fruitfulness. And you cast yourself on him in dependent prayer, because through prayer alone, through Christ working alone, we bear fruit. I do this every Sunday when I have to teach. I am powerless to produce any fruit. I want to bear fruit. But, oh God, Christ, you must do your work in and through me as I bring this word. That's how you should be praying. As you're seeking to bear fruit, cast yourself on Christ. As you're filled with his word, seeking him to accomplish these things in you. That's how you abide in Christ. So those are two practical ways that Christ gives us for how to abide in him. But to press this home just a little bit further for our lives, let me just say that we cannot abide in Christ in this way just described. If we do not have a regular, set-aside time to feed on and be nourished by the Word and to cast ourselves on Christ in dependent prayer. That's going to look different for everybody. The mother with many young children, it's going to look different for her. The point is not that it all looks the same, but the point of this pattern of your life of casting yourself on Christ in dependence on His Word, feeding on it however you can, and praying. And these set-aside times is not the whole of abiding. That's to happen moment by moment, day by day. But this, these intentional times are what feeds and enables us to abide for the rest of the day. So to illustrate this point, I, I want to read an excerpt from the book, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I mentioned at the missions conference how Hudson Taylor is one of my heroes, let me read you what was written here about him. It says, To Hudson Taylor, the secret of overcoming lay in daily, hourly fellowship with God, abiding in Christ. And this, he found, could only be maintained by secret prayer and feeding upon the Word, through which he reveals himself to the waiting soul. It was not easy for Mr. Taylor in his changeful life to make time for prayer and Bible study, but he knew that it was vital. Well, do the writers remember, this is his son writing, well, do the writers remember traveling with him month after month in northern China by cart and wheelbarrow with the poorest of inns at night, Often with only one large room for coolies and travelers alike, they would screen off a corner for their father and another for themselves with curtains of some sort. And then, after sleep had at last brought a measure of quiet, they would hear a match struck and see the flicker of candlelight, which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible in two volumes always at hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to prayer. The time he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. That flicker of candlelight has meant more to them than all that they have read or heard on secret prayer. It meant reality, not preaching, but practice. The hardest part of a missionary career Mr. Taylor found is to maintain regular prayerful Bible study. Satan will always find you something to do, he would say, when you ought to be preoccupied about that, if it is only arranging a window blind. So true, isn't it? Hudson Taylor would later write, Communion with Christ requires our coming to him. Meditating upon his person and work requires the diligent use of the means of grace. 
and especially the prayerful reading of His Word. Many fail to abide because they habitually fast instead of feed. So those are two essential elements, lessons, on a fruitful life in union with Christ. Believer, do you abide in Christ? Oh, I hope you've been exhorted to do so this morning. Is that the primary identity that you see yourself? It's one in union with Christ? Because of that, the Father's already completely devoted to you because you're in Christ. You're already completely clean. And He's sovereignly working in your life. And you have a commission hanging over your head to go and bear fruit. And you do that by continual communion with Him, persevering in dependence on Him through the Word and through prayer. That's what true disciples do. And perfectly, growing up and down, but that's the basic pattern of their life. But perhaps you're here this morning. You've had some religious experience in your past. You identify with Christ. You claim to be in Christ. But in reality, you're just dead wood. You don't even have the slightest abiding dependence on Christ and His Word. You have none of the life of Christ coursing through your veins. You don't regularly feed on Christ's sacrifice by confession of sin and fresh faith in His blood. And as a result, you have no fruit in your life. You're just dead wood. Pray the Lord will use this passage as a means of grace to wake you up to the serious condition you're in. The Father is against such pretenders. He'll break them off and judge them. You must be born again. Acknowledge your deadness. Look to Christ and live. But for the rest of you, Christians, pray this passage has brought you much comfort as to all that is yours because of your union with Christ. I pray the result will be that you abide in Christ more deeply, more consistently, more earnestly seeking to bear fruit in union with Him by feeding on His Word, seeking Him in prayer, depending on His sacrifice, all for His glory and the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.